we should be focusing on foremost investments that generate cash flow. I mean, that that is the driver of returns. It's the income from bonds. It's the dividends from stocks. It's the rent from real estate investment trusts that, that works into a dividend. I mean, that is the key to investing. It's the cash flow and then how that cash flow grows over, over time. And those are the things that are most predictable. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 111-111. Jace, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing great, man. How you doing? Good, good. We talked a little bit about the show and kind of what we want to talk about in this opening segment is required minimum distributions from traditional 401ks, right? Recently, we had a couple episodes and a couple millionaires that we've been talking to. The one that stands out is is episode number 99 with Diane, where she had a lot in her traditional 401k, right? And, and she was reaching the age where she's going to have to take required minimum distributions. And that was in, a, in her situation, I think in others, it was going to bump her up to a really high tax bracket, right? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of an interesting conversation to have, especially for those, you know, when, when 401ks were first introduced, we're kind of getting to that first population distribution, if you want, of people who had very early access, you know, access in their early 20s and 30s to then start contributing to a 401k or a traditional type product. And, you know, they're getting to the point now where they're, you know, that baby boomer generation is retiring and they're now just getting to that point at, at 70, 70 and a half where it is right now, where they're going to be required to take those required minimum distributions. And it's kind of a, you know, we've had some conversation with some people. It's kind of a wake up call to some degree because some people have saved so well and now you know the government wants their money at some point, right? And so now they're going to be required to kind of push themselves into a tax bracket that maybe they've never been in before if they've been such a super saver. So it's definitely something to be conscientious about. You know, in my own planning right now, I'm trying to trying to figure out like one, where where do I see myself in the future, and then two, kind of navigate you know all the political changing environments that we might experience over the next you know thirty forty years. But there's been a lot of talk and raising that age, but nonetheless, the government's gonna get their gonna get their money, and you know traditional accounts sometimes can can prove to have a little bit more difficulty when you're looking at estate planning too. Uh, because your heirs are going to have to take those or whoever you're, you know, give your money. But there's also some cool things you can do with gifting, uh, you know, in, out of traditional accounts to try to minimize that tax burden. Right. One of those being you can, you can gift to, to charity, right? And then you don't have to yep. sell your stock and you can take the full deduction for, for the giving on your itemization. It can help you, especially now that, that the standard deduction has increased so much. And I, th- I think this interview we're going to do today with David, right? I think he thinks a lot about this stuff and, and certainly about the markets. You know, I think a lot of people have 401ks that are higher now because there's been such a, a large bull market here the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So I, I think David, you know, he's got some, some really good insight on, on the markets, what one can expect to return or can project for a, a return in the markets in the future. Um, he's author of, of the new book that just came out and also the popular podcast titled Money for the Rest of Us. So we go into a little bit about his background as an institutional money manager and his thoughts, again, about you know where the market is today and where he thinks it's heading in the future. 
he also shares insight about his new book and, and what one can expect to learn. So I think a really exciting interview from David. Anything that stood out to you from today's interview? Yeah, I think the biggest thing probably is, is you know, he's been doing this for a long time, right? Well, much longer than you and I have. And, you know, his return projections are just much lower than, than I typically use in my calculator or I typically think that, that, that I'll get. But, you know, at the same time, I've, I've been on, you know, I've been investing now for, what, 15 years, uh, basically a little over 15 years. And, and I've, I feel like I've got a pretty good handle, but uh, you know, 10 years, that's been a pretty big bull market, although it did go through 08, 09, uh, you know, in the downturn there. But I think that's the biggest thing that stood out is just kind of the low rate of return that, that he uses and that he really thinks is realistic. You know, it starts to make me think like, if you're really going to get that low of a return in the public markets, then maybe you're better off looking at other investment vehicles. That's kind of the way I started thinking about it. Sure. Yeah, I think you made some good points though, right? I, I, it makes you think, and he could totally be right. You yeah. know, hard, hard to know. So on last week's show, we had Ed. He works in public education. He's a career public educator. He started as a teacher, then he moved to be a principal, and then he worked uh, for the district. So a really good good story with him about investing and, and growing your income and growing your investments off a, a public teacher salary. He had a net worth of about 1.2 or has, I should say, 300,000 in real estate. He also has a rental vacation home and then uh, several hundred thousand in his retirement account. So a really great interview with him. Before we get into this ep- episode with David, just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identify stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come from investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. We're thankful for Obsidian Capital Co. and their willingness to sponsor the show and, and kind of help us keep it going. We have a, a sponsorship spot opening up at the beginning of the new year. So if anybody's interested or know somebody who is, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, we appreciate all you guys listening to the show week after week. If you enjoy the show, please re- leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us grow the show and, and reach new millionaire interviews, interviewees and, and keep bringing and sharing some good content. So without any further delay, please help me welcome David to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, David, you want to just give our listeners a little bit about your background, kind of your career path and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. I got an MBA in, in finance. My undergrad was in finance and spent a couple years in corporate finance, mostly as a credit analyst. And then I, I moved to a small 28-person investment firm called Fund Evaluation Group. We were essentially investment advisors to endowments and foundations. So we would help them with asset allocation and selecting managers, policy. And in that, as that company evolved, it got bigger. I started an, what's called an, an outsource, an outsource CIO product. So essentially an asset management product managing money for endowments and foundations, their entire portfolio. So $50 million, $100 million foundations. And in that role evolved to chief investment strategist, chief portfolio strategist. So most of my time was spent managing money. And then I left that uh, seven years ago. I 
sort of got to the point where I could retire early and try some other things. And I was in my mid forties and, and a couple years after that, I started Money for the Rest of Us, a, a weekly personal finance podcast. Been doing that seven years. And the aspect that I missed about being an institutional investment advisor was just teaching. And so this allows me to teach without having the uh, pressure of actually managing people's assets. Awesome. Yeah, let's get into a little bit of that and your history and stuff. You know, we've got a, an interesting market now, right? Like we've been on this great bull run. There's so many different places that, that one can invest how does somebody kind of sift through the noise of all the different options out there? And, and what's kind of the role of maybe going and using somebody like you or who is a financial advisor, somebody who's got more expertise in that field? Well, you know, most people can invest on talk. When I talk about financial advisors, I was never a financial planner. So it was, I would manage assets for institutions for, but there's enough information out there and there's enough products that individuals can manage their own assets using index funds, using ETFs. There's, there's an opportunity to, to use other vehicles or asset classes, but it, you know, it's something that we can do on our own. And if you want to hire a financial advisor, sometimes it's helpful to hire them on a project basis to kind of see if you're on track. For retirement, but I I think most investors, most of their investment time should be focused on asset classes as opposed to speculations into cryptocurrencies or foreign currency or, or things that we just get caught kind of in the weeds when we should be focusing on foremost investments that generate cash flow. I mean that that is the driver of returns. It's the income from bonds. It's the dividends from stocks. It's the rent from real estate investment trusts and that, that works into a dividend. I mean, that is the key to investing. It's the cash flow and then how that cash flow grows over, over time. And those are the things that are most predictable. When we get into how the market is valuing cash flows, you know, in terms of price to earnings ratios for stocks or the, the, the level of yields, I mean, that, that's where it gets more difficult. But if we spend most of our time on the actual investing, the cash flow, making sure it's diversified, I mean, there is no right portfolio. You can't optimize it. It just needs to be diversified and buy low-cost investments. And that that's really should be the basis or the foundation of most individuals, how they invest. Yeah, I agree with you, David. And I think it's interesting because we don't often talk about cash flow if you're investing, or at least at a, at a younger age, right? If you're investing in index or mutual funds or target day retirement funds. But at the end of the day, that's what it is, right? Everybody's investing for at some point, you know, whether it's a dividend or if it's a, you know a loan or real estate or or you know but in the end an index fund is just going to be sold or or you're going to take distributions you know a four percent rule or whatever for cash flow right that's what it's all about. Well, well, right. I mean, I'm really focused on you know what is it that drives returns. I think as investors we should figure out you know have a, a reasonable return assumption, and that gets mm -hmm. us to the point of figuring out how are returns determined. And we can look at historical stock returns. Historically, they've returned nine and a half percent. Four percentage points has been the dividend. This is going back to 1926. Another four to five percent has been the earnings growth. So how the dividends and earnings have grown over time. And about a percent has been the stocks getting more expensive over time. Investors willing to pay more for that earnings and earnings growth. I mean, those are the historical return drivers. And we can break down any asset class historically or going forward and say, well, what has to happen? For this to be a successful investment, what are the drivers of that? And for the stock market, I mean, now we're in a situation where dividend yields are 2% for the U.S. stock market. 
if we assume earnings grow at, at 4% to 5%, I mean, we're at a 6 to 7% return. I mean, well below the historic or historical 10% return. And that's just something I think if we spend time as individuals, if we're interested in investing, spend time understanding the drivers of asset classes and how returns are generated, and that pro- will provide a solid foundation. So what's your take on that, David? Do you think people can expect that 9%? No, no, I don't. I mean, I again... If dividend yields are two to you know two and a half percent, two percent, earnings generally earnings over time have grown slower than the nominal growth of the economy. So if we look at the historical growth of U.S. earnings since 1980, I mean it varies year to year, but generally the track has been about a five point about five point three percent. So if we add five point three percent to a two percent dividend yield. For U.S. stocks, that gets us to 7.3%. So if we're going to get 9.5% return, it means stocks have to get even more pricey than they are today. And right now, price-to-earnings ratios are in the, in the low 20s, which is more expensive than they have historically been. If stocks get cheaper, then the returns will be less than that 7.3% over the next decade. And I, I like to look at this kind of over 10-year periods because you know, every year it can be very different. But over the, a longer time frame, it's driven by the dividends and it's driven by that earnings growth or how that cash flow from the dividend grows over time. So you're forecasting, let's say, for an average portfolio, let, let's call it 75% stocks or index funds or mutual funds, whatever, and then 25% bonds. You think maybe a, a 6 to 7% growth rate over the next 20, 30 years is more accurate? Uh, probably closer to 5% because you know, we haven't talked about bonds, but the primary driver of bond returns is the current yield to maturity. Uh, or you can go on for a particular fund or ETF, you can go on Morningstar or on the fund's website and it'll list out what's known as the SEC yield, which is essentially the yield the bonds is, is generating in that portfolio less the expenses. And right now, for example, the, the SEC yield on the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund is about 2%. And if we assume, let's say, 6% for stocks, right? I mean, you do the math. Uh, I, well, you probably better do a math in your head than I am. But take <laughs> 75% times 6% and 25% di- times 2%. I mean, you're closer to a, about a 5% return. Right. Which right. means, you know, as investors, we need to save more. Because the returns are not going to match what they have historically, certainly for the bonds. I mean, bonds are very, very predictable. Right, right. In the sense that, you know, they will, the prices fluctuate as interest rates change. But over time, even if rates go up and the value of the bonds fall, that bond manager is then reinvesting at those higher interest rates. And so that, you know, over a seven to 10 year holding period, the annualized return ends up being what the starting yield was, the starting yield to maturity or SEC yield. So very predictable. Stocks, yeah. less so, but I think those are reasonable assumptions. So if so, when I hear that, David, I say, well, why would I invest more in the market if I could invest in real estate or, or private loans or small business, right? I mean, you'd like to think that a real estate investment could be 5%. So how does that impact your personal portfolio or how should it impact others? Obviously, you want to be diversified, but are you making decisions based off of that assumption? Well, I am. I mean, if you look at as rates have fallen, the yield or the cap rate on real estate has fallen. The, the cap rate or the capitalization rate is what is the yield after expenses divided by the market value of the property? And they're less than 5%. And so, no, I mean, it's not guaranteed that you're going to earn more than 5%. 
on real estate. Now, I go back to return drivers. The reason why people earn more money on real estate is because they borrow money to buy the real estate. It's the leverage that tends to magnify the returns. But we need to first look at the investment on a standalone basis. You know, how does unlevered real estate compare to the opportunity in, in stocks or in preferred stocks or other, you know, peer to peer lending? I mean, every asset class has, we can come up with an expected return and then we need to recognize you know, the risks involved via the liquidity, the leverage risk or things of that sort. Yeah. I think it's a great, a great point. I agree. Um, let's dive into your allocation a little bit. You share this in, in your new book, Money for the Rest of Us, and we're going to get into it later, but I think it fits in now. So just kind of hitting the big pieces, you say you have about 27% in private real estate. That's both real estate and land, about 21% in asset-based lending, uh, 12% in global stocks and REITs, 10% in bonds, 11% in private capital, and about 5 6% in cash. And I think those are those are your big buckets. And then obviously gold, cryptocurrency, some other things there. How long has it kind of taken you to come up with this asset allocation? And is this something that you plan to change going forward? Is this something that's constantly changing? You know, obviously not a percent or two, but have you kind of toned this to this is where you're going to hold it now? Generally speaking, I mean, I'll adjust it as investment conditions change. But I mean, there's a clear split between publicly traded investments and more private investments. I mean, I'm at this stage of life where I'm not shooting for growth. I, I'm happy earning a 5% return because I'm just trying to preserve capital over time. And so as a result, I mean, I don't, I don't have a huge allocation to stocks. You know, a lot of it is, you know, the asset-based lending, for example, is you know, a big portion is lend. I lent the money on an apartment building. So I had a friend that built a 12-plex apartment. He sold it to somebody that wanted to buy it through their individual retirement account. Very few banks are willing to lend money to an IRA. And so the the interest rate that I'm getting on that is 6.5%. And it's secured by this apartment building. So in that case, I mean, the 6.5% is in line with what we expect for the stock market potentially. But this is way more predictable. And so as a result, that's that's an example of an what I call asset-based lending. Right. I agree with you. And I think there can be some great opportunities there, right? If you can find it and you, and you have enough cash. Is that kind of why you keep five or 6% of, of cash on hand for those opportunities or also kind of just to have a, a larger emergency fund and kind of a reserve fund if you see an opportunity? Yeah. I like, I like to keep some sort of optionality there if there's something comes along. I mean, it, it varies over time, but I mean, generally cash is under 10%. I mean, there's not a whole lot in the public markets right now that I find terribly compelling. I mean, right. nothing that's like, like just really, really attractive. And so, I mean, I don't, I've not made, I haven't not made many changes at all this year in my portfolio, but I, I think the key takeaway, which is why I listed out, you know, all those asset classes in the book is, you know, my approach to asset allocation is what I call an asset garden approach. You think about a flower garden or a vegetable garden. I mean, we don't optimize flower gardens. I mean, investment advisors or sometimes the financial planners like, well, you know, modern portfolio theory is based on optimizing your investment portfolio, figuring out the best portfolio for expected level of return and risk, where there's a lot of embedded assumptions there, a lot of which are made up. And so I don't think we're trying to optimize a portfolio. We just want variety, just like you want variety in a flower garden, you know, different types of plants, different colors, different smells. The portfolio that I have has you know, over a dozen asset classes. One, because I like to learn about asset classes. I like to invest in them, understand what drives the returns like we talked about earlier. And so there's there's a number of, of you know, sometimes there's very small percentage. Yield codes, for example. I mean, there's only 1% allocation. 
partly because I was learning how yield codes work. And yield codes essentially are they're dividend paying investments, but they're invested in renewable energy. You know, if individuals like investing, you have to decide where do you want to spend your time. And I think it's more valuable for people to spend their time learning about asset categories than it is trying to research individual stocks. Yeah, I think allocation is a, a super interesting subject, right? Because it's some, it's a question that everybody faces. And, and some of the millionaires that we have on our show, they say, hey, I'm you know, 90, 95% in real estate because I can't control the equity markets and I feel like I, I want to control them. And then there's other people that say, that's crazy, right? I want to I be diversified. It's like you're saying here, I want to be in lots of different asset classes. And if something happens, I can kind of limit my losses. But I also want to dabble in other spaces. So I think allocation and finding one's own allocation is obviously an important. And so- well, sure. I mean, let's take real estate. I mean, I, I have owned rental real estate in the past. I mean, it's a, it's a job, even if you have a property manager. I gravitate more toward paper assets or things of that. I own land. You know, I've, son- I've done some of this debt financing. But actual, I mean, if somebody's very good and they can buy an apartment right and it's generating the, the 8 to 10% return that they want, I mean, sure. You can put 90% in that if you have diversified portfolio buildings, I mean, and live quite nicely like that. But it takes a lot of work. And and some people just don't, they're not interested in doing that. I'm, I'm an example of that. I'd rather focus on other types of assets. Right, right. So when you were an investment advisor and, and managing some of these these foundations and, and their money, were they mostly in the stock market? Were they completely diversified? Did you decide that allocation? Did they? How did that work? Well, initially, for, for many of our clients, we advise them. And so they would hire, we would recommend an asset allocation. They would make the decision. We would help them identify money managers. And it was very, very diversified. And it, typically, it might be 50 to 60% stock, but they'd have a lot of private investment, private equity, real estate. I mean, it was, it was diversified. But a big part of what I did was I started a product at our firm that was a discretionary product where we actually took over all the assets and managed them. And in that case, we actually used ETFs and and some funds, but it isn't that dissimilar to what I have in my portfolio now. So just adding different return drivers, a lot of it passive, but then you know, the active kind of in the private space. And the idea was instead of having the re- you know, a typical endowment return or even a typical individual's return, their stock exposure, it's not being driven by individual stocks. Because there's too many of them. It's being driven by factors. So is it value? Is it momentum? And so my focus is on really these factors, which are persistent drivers of return over time and getting as many different factors in my portfolio as possible. And that's how we managed money institutionally. You know, it was really, you know, we didn't always call them factors. We called them roles that, you know, different asset types had different roles in the portfolio for different economic regimes. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. You know, David, you've got this allocation now. You're basically, quote unquote, early retired and, and, and doing other things and teaching people about finances and stuff. How did you kind of come up with this portfolio? Is this something that you kind of developed in your 20s or was it really over time as you started learning more and more about each asset class or, or how did that kind of evolve? Kind of incrementally. So, I mean, I didn't sit and do a, let's say, a traditional asset allocation study. I, I mean, I, I think for most individuals, for example, if you're trying to figure out how much to put in the stock market. The worst case scenario for stocks has been about a 60% loss. And so if you're trying to say, okay, I, if I put all my money in the stock market, I potentially could lose 60%. If I put it in cash, I'm not going to lose anything, but it probably won't keep up with inflation. And so this, this allocation, you know, the basis is, well, I 
in my case, I don't want to lose 60% in the stock market. So I'm, I'm more comfortable with stock and stock like assets kind of in the 20% range. Because if I can get other cash flow yielding assets that have the same expected return as the stock market, I'll put more money in that. And so you know, many of these asset types, I mean, asset based lending, I gave that as a, you know, it's 18% of my portfolio roughly. Well, it's generating a 6% return. I'm happy with that. So that's why you see more there. Other asset classes, but it, it, it's, it's sort of, there's a return assumption and how predictable is that return assumption? And then I scale the percent to that particular asset type based on the confidence level. You know, will that return be achieved? And so I put more money in those asset classes that are more predictable. Interesting. And, and just curious, roughly how much of that is tax protected versus not either in, you know, a, a 401k type or traditional IRA or Roth IRA type account versus not? Yeah, it's about 25% tax deferred and the rest is taxable. Okay. And, and, and that's an important component for, you know, as individuals as they think about retiring early that you can't live on your IRA when you're in your 50s. So you need to be saving a lot of money after tax totally to, to be able to live. And so, I mean, there's always, there's always a balance there. So yeah, about a quarter of it's tax deferred. Was that something that you were pretty intentional with in your twenties and thirties to get there so that you were there in your forties or, or is that just kind of happenstance just because there's max amounts you can put in those accounts? Yeah, it was happenstance. I mean, we, we had set up at our firm, I think you could defer a maximum of, of forty to fifty thousand dollars per year tax deferred. So we did that, and then, but I mean, the, the bulk of you know my net worth came from actually selling my stake in my investment firm. So when I left, you know, we were privately owned when I left seven years ago, and my so my partners bought me out. So then that that obviously is a big component. So when you sell a business, I mean, by definition, most of your assets or net worth will be taxable. Totally. Let's shift gears here a little bit and, and kind of get into your book. You've got this book. You've been working on it probably for quite a while. I know you got the ebook and then uh, the uh, audio book coming out and, and then the hardback as well. What can one expect to learn from there? And, and what are some of the key points that, that you feel are super important for somebody to, to kind of take away from your book? Well, the, the object of the book was to teach how to invest. And there, there's a lot of quality investing books out there, but they tend to be very narrowly focused. So it might be on buying individual stocks or investing in real estate or cryptocurrencies. I wanted to write a book to help individuals figure out which asset classes should they be investing in? How do you decide between real estate or stocks or cryptocurrencies? And so it's structured as 10 questions that we should ask and answer before we invest in anything. And it, it, the goal is just to provide a framework or an investment discipline. As an investment advisor, I would research hedge fund managers or stock managers. And invariably, they have a specific investment process, steps that they take in evaluating investment securities. As individuals, we should have the same thing. We should have a framework or decision-making framework to decide, all right, here's what I need to know about this investment to decide whether to invest or not. And that's what the book provides. It's structured to be Evergreen, so we can take readers can take this template and apply it to investments that are available today or new ones in the future. And that, that was really the goal of the book, just a, a decision making framework to help investors and individuals know how to invest and apply them in their, in their investing. 
Yeah, and, and congrats on the success of the book and on your podcast. Obviously, I think it's really well done. Jason and I both have both looked through it. I'm partway through it. So I think it's it's really well written, really thorough, uh, great ideas, great topics. I really like all, all the information you share on allocation. And, and like you said, these questions, I think it forces you or, or makes you think a different way, right? You consider the upside, consider the downside, and and then you can make a, a logical decision. How many podcast episodes have you done now? I just released episode two seventy five today, so um, awesome. it, you know it. Uh, it's been it's been fun. It's been over five years. I'm approaching six years in the podcast. I love doing it, and you know that that's a free podcast. I also do a, a premium podcast for members. That so I mean I've done you know I guess if you include the premium podcast, I've done one well over five hundred episodes over the past five years. So the premium members, just for our listeners, they get access to an additional episode. Is that right? Yeah, they get an additional episode. They get model portfolios. So you get to see what's in my portfolio. And, and probably most valuable is I do a, a monthly investment conditions report where I decide and look at investment conditions and rate them red, green, or yellow based on economic trends, valuations, and market internals. And, and these are sort of a, a filters to help us decide how much risk we should be taking in the markets at any given time. And that really comes from how I invested, you know, as a money manager. We, we did what was known as active asset allocation. So, so we were willing to adjust our portfolio mix based on investment conditions at any one time. Awesome. So you can check out that book, Money for the Rest of Us, also moneyfortherestofus.com. Uh, and just kind of scrolling through your last 10 episodes or so, just to provide our listeners kind of an overview on some of the topics that are covered. You have, are you diversified? Is inflation, is inflation measured wrong? Financial independence is a choice how the public center sector pension crisis will impact you, how to better manage risk, uh, invest like a Tesla. Sounds interesting. Using momentum investing and trend following. You kind of take a, a deeper dive into these topics, David, right? How often or how long does it take you to put one of these together and how do you decide which topics you're going to speak about? Well, it t- you know, I don't do interviews. So these are, these are solo shows typically last 25 to 30 minutes and I'll spend typically five to six hours preparing prepping for the episode, researching it, figuring out what I'm going to say. The topics, just whatever I'm interested in that week. So, I mean, this week on the topic was being overly diversified. And that came from, I mean, literally, I woke up Monday morning. I record on Tuesdays. I get up on Monday, figure out, well, I need to podcast on something tomorrow. I had no <laughs> idea what I was going to do. And I got an email from this guy that had met with a financial advisor. And he had, you know, four Vanguard funds, index funds. And the, the advisor said, basically, you're doing this wrong. You're over diversified. You have 10,000 stocks. Let me help you and I will buy individual stocks for you. And so that really led to mm. that episode because Warren Buffett talks about, about that a lot in sure. the sense that he, he started searching for articles on over diversification. Invariably, they quote uh, Buffett that says diversification is a sign of ignorance and and so they consider that a bad thing. But what he's saying is if you don't have an insight into a particular company to know it's a quality business and it's priced right, then you are ignorant and you should own index funds. And that's what he says. So we kind of go through, go through some of the math on that episode. You know, and how many stocks is overly diversified? And so it was kind of a fun episode to do just because, I mean, I felt bad for the guy because he was, he was ready to basically completely do a different asset mix. Mm. change his overall allocation of the stocks and international by buying a couple active funds. He wasn't going to hire the advisor, but the, the guy had shaken him enough that he was willing to basically undo an asset allocation that had worked very well for him 
because he'd been accused and felt bad for being overly diversified. Yeah, it's tough. So, and I know you said this, David, at the beginning that most people can kind of handle their own investments, but do you think there's a time or is there a time where you recommend somebody use a financial advisor? Well, I, I think they should use them to make sure they're on track for retirement. So meet with them, perhaps estate planning you know, on a project basis. I mean, some people, just they don't want anything to do with their investments. And so you can hire an advisor to oversee your assets if it gives you peace of mind and keeps you from, from panicking. There's a cost to that. So fees, advisor fees, taxes, I mean, they come out of the returns. And so as long as you're comfortable that your returns are going to be lower, then it's fine. You hire an advisor for peace of mind. You do not hire an advisor because you believe that they're going to outperform the market through their stock selection because they're not. Because if they were that good, they would not be a financial planner. They would be running a hedge fund right. to make way more money. Right. Agreed. So last point, David, I want to I want to hit on, and, and you talk about this a little bit in your in your book. I think it's it's interesting. Sometimes we think of investing as is it investing, speculating, or gambling, right? It's kind of those three things. Talk a little bit about your book. I know that's in in chapter four, I believe, right? Or second chapter, excuse me, of your book. Well, right. I mean, so that's one of the questions we should ask. You know, is you know if we're trying to look at the universe of investments and say we we found one that looks interesting. We need to understand, is this truly an investment or is it a speculation or a gamble? And an investment is something that has a positive expected return because it has cash flow. So it has income, dividends, interest, rent. I mean, that's typical. Or let's say it's stocks and they don't have, they're not paying dividends. Well, they're generating earnings, hopefully, and will eventually pay dividends. A speculation is something where you're unsure whether the return will be positive or negative. Because it's, there's no cash flow. So it's going to be worth whatever investors are willing to pay in the future. So gold coins is an example of that, or cryptocurrencies. Not that we should never own them, but we need to recognize that there's disagreement there because you can't value it. There is no right price for gold. Right. There's a right price for stocks because we can look at current PEs, price to earnings ratios, and the historical. We can look at the dividend yields. For gold, there's nothing to look at. It's just price, whatever it is. So that's why it's a speculation. You know, antiques are a speculation. So you're, you're hoping down the road, somebody will pay more than in the future. With stocks or bonds, if nobody pays more in the future, you'll still make money because you're, you're collecting the income. And then gambles are something with a negative expected return. And we just we stay clear of that. You do that for entertainment. You go to Vegas expecting to lose. You don't want to go into <laughs> any investment expecting to lose. And that's why we need kind of these knowledge or a framework, a decision framework, so that our personal knowledge doesn't put us in a position where we're expected to lose because of our lack of knowledge. Yeah, great point, great point. Well, David, hey, we're appreciative of you coming on the show. It's David Steiner, everybody, podcast host of Money for the Rest of Us and author of, of a new book by the same name. Really great book, really well written. Check it out. David, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.